Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to NJSBA's Blog Talk Radio program, Conversations on New Jersey Education, a program dedicated to creating a conversation among those of us in the education community, and I guess and beyond, on important education issues of the day, a conversation that brings state leaders to you and education leaders to you, and I hope that you all feel free to join us in the conversation. My name is Ray Penny. I'll be your host for this afternoon's program. Today, we will not only be taking your calls, but as usual, we have a chat room open. I think that this will give you another vehicle in which to participate in the program. Uh, Michael will be taking calls this this afternoon, and if you want, he will uh, just be screening the calls and taking your name and the question so that I I can put you right up. To participate by phone, dial 1-347-989-8904, 1-347-989-8904, and when you're ready to make a comment or ask a question, Press 1, and that will indicate on the, on switchboard that you're ready to ask a question, and that's when Michael will get your information. If you're listening on your computer, we do have a chat the chat room feature live, as I said before, and you can just type in the question. I will pass it on to our uh, guests. Uh, I'm excited about today's program because it's on an issue that's important to every single school district and uh, parent and student. It's about special education. It does not matter the size of your school district or the demographic of your school district. It's one that all school districts are grappling with, both educationally and financially. And it's an area that is guided by a morass of federal and state laws and regulations, which sometimes make it hard for even those immersed in education to understand the rules. Uh, This afternoon, I'm fortunate to have with me two guests who are experienced in special education, uh, first, uh, and they come from different perspectives. First, I have with me um, Jerry Cristanino, who's a, not only uh, a director of special education in Jersey City, but he's also a school board member in Union County. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Okay, um, and I also have with uh, before I introduce, let me just introduce Nathania. I also have Nathania Simon, who's a partner in Schwartz Simon Edelstein and Kelso. Uh, welcome, Nathania. Thank you very much. Uh, Jerry, before we get going, you want to just tell a little bit about your background briefly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, certainly. I'll be very quick, and I'm glad to be with my partner here. We've been doing some workshops on this. Um, as you said before, I'm the Director of Special Services in Jersey City Public Schools. We have about 4,500 special needs students. We're doing a lot of innovative things there in the district. It's a district on the move, so I'm happy to be there. I'm also have been on the Board of Education um, in Union County for 12 years. It's an it's a suburban district. It's quite different than where I um, work every day. And so I, I get to see from both perspectives of special education. And one of the things and we'll be talking I about am is the role and of the board. I'm a partner in the law firm, as indicated, uh, Schwartz-Simon, Edelstein, and Celso, located in Whippany, New Jersey. Uh, My career started out after law school and a clerkship at the New Jersey School Boards Association as in-house counsel for their legal department for several years. And when I went into practice, I decided that I would like to focus uh, my practice upon the representation of school districts 
and have been doing so for the past 30 years with a particular emphasis on special education and student matters. And um, I've had the privilege to work with Jerry um, and his district um, as uh, in terms of uh, the Union County School District, and I also have um, handled cases that have started um, at the uh, Office of Administrative Law uh, through the um, uh, court system, both state and federal, uh, through to the United States Supreme Court. So I've had a lot of experience at um, all levels of the court system as well as all levels of IEP development and other issues confronting school districts. All right. We're talking special education, which as I said before, it affects all. Uh, Jerry, why don't you start first? Why do you think it's important, for, particularly for school board members, to be informed on special education? You know, as a school, a school board member, you have an inordinate responsibility, responsibility to every stakeholder in the community, the students, the parents, the school, the school uh, administrators. Um, and part of that responsibility is getting to... Um, look and making sure that all the proper services are met for each student. Now, special education is a huge part of a budget. Anyone that's been on a school board knows that a special education um, cost can eat up anywhere from 20 to 25% of your school budget. As a result, there's going to be a lot of decisions you as a school board member are going to have to make that balance not only the school expenses, but making sure that your students receive the necessary services that they need, because it's all about the kids and making sure the kids have what they need to be able to be successful in life. So it's a very important part of what we do as school board members do. There are limitations in our role, but you know you, you get accustomed to that. We can't know everything, and we'll talk about that a little later, but it's a huge part of the responsibility of a board. And uh, Nathania, um, legally, there's so many different things that a board has to worry about when they get into this area. So I guess it's important from the legal perspective that they make sure they're doing the following the proper procedure. Well, that's correct. And but as Jerry um, indicated, the role of a board member, yes, it is to be good overseers. But uh, it's very important for them to make sure that they place competent people into the positions that are day-to-day -day responsible for the administration of the programs and the services. Uh, so uh, legal compliance is a huge piece of uh, special education. There is a booklet that is... Uh, you know, quite lengthy that every parent uh, is provided in terms of their parental rights. And so it is a, a litigious area because of that um, and because of the fact that it is such an emotional issue uh, for the parent and it is such a costly issue for school districts. And if I may, right, and it's, uh, it's, it's an area ahead, that as a school you're going to be drawn into because, as Daniel said, there are a lot of settlements and mediations that you'll become aware of because there's a cost to it. And so it's important that as a board member, you educate yourself in the realm of special education. Not that you have to be an expert, but you have to know to be able to make educated decisions. And um, in public education, the one thing that we're really good at manufacturing is acronyms. Uh, and <laughs> maybe more so in special education. So we're going to do part of that education a little bit now. Because uh, I think you need to be familiar with a lot of the terminology as a board member. 
uh, or even as a parent. Um, I'm going to go through a few of them. We'll just go through them briefly, uh, but I think it's important that people know what it is because sometimes you'll be here as a board member, you hear them all the time, and you may not even remember what they stand for. Uh, Jerry, let's start with FAPE. Um, what is FAPE and why is it important? Okay, well, Jerry and I were both talking about these different acronyms that, that are the key components to um, special education, and the first one is known as FAPE, F-A-P-E. Uh, it stands for Free Appropriate Public Education, which is a little bit of a, 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 a an interesting concept since it also covers private education, but it does stand for Free Appropriate Public Education, and it is a federally uh, designed standard that is required to be met when providing services to any student who has been deemed eligible to receive special education. It is a legal standard that when you go into uh, litigation, every judge will say, are you providing a free, appropriate public education to this student? And it's not one block of, of items. It will vary from student to student based on the needs of the student and the identified requirements in order for that student to make meaningful progress in the program and services that are being offered. And what about, uh, Joe, do you have any comment on that? or Nathaniel, No, I, I think it's, it's something you're going to hear a lot. Um, it's something that's not out there in the public domain, so it does seem a little funny when you talk about faith. But it really is the guiding principle behind what we do in the school district. Uh, one of the other ones is uh, LRE. Uh, yes, LRE. Um, and it, it's funny how some of them you spell out and say, and some of them you don't. And LRE is one of those you spell out, um, and it stands for Least Restrictive Environment. And again, this is a, a concept and a standard that comes from the uh, federal and state laws, as well as court cases. And what... Um, the, the mandate to a school district is, is based on the fact that every student who is identified and eligible for services and an uh, IEP, which we will define a little bit later, but is basically their individual plan, must receive the FAPE, the Free Appropriate Public Education, in the least restrictive environment to the maximum extent possible, which means that the mandate is to try to retain your children in your home school district with the appropriate level of services to the maximum extent before having that child go on a tuition basis to either another public school or a private school. And if I may add, as, um, in special education, we look to see first can the services that this child needs be delivered in the general education program? Because the research suggests that students do best with their general education peers unless the disability is so extreme that they need other services that cannot be delivered. So LRE really talks about looking at the general ed um, placement and then moving out from there to what would be the the most restrictive, which would be an added district placement that like, was just referenced. So that right, seems um, to be a not not a goal, but something that you look at first is the right. I mean, once you determine what the free appropriate education is, then you're looking at the setting, and the setting is a continuum. And as Jerry said, the first 
step on that continuum is to retain the child in the general ed setting. Then the second might be to consider uh, putting an in-class support teacher or an aide into the gen ed as a, a further support for the child to be successful in the general ed. And if that then is still not enough for the child to make meaningful progress, then you might look at a resource room or a pull-out, some kind of self-contained setting, but still within the public school setting of their home district so that they can still have access to non-disabled peers and other kinds of activities within the public school. And then the last resort, if nothing of those will be of benefit, is to consider a removal from the school itself into a more restrictive out-of-district placement. And absolutely, when we make a decision, we look, number one, at what are the needs of the child? What services do we have to provide to meet the child's needs because we want the child to be successful? And then we say, where can those needs best be delivered? And in many cases, they can be delivered in a general education class or a class with a co-teacher, which we'll talk about a little later, and keeping them in with the general education peers. All right. Um, oh, good. We had a little fuzziness there, and it seems to be gone now. Um, you know, you said it before, uh, before but uh, IDEA uh, is probably, you know, federal law really does guide a lot of special education decisions. And uh, you want to explain what that is, IDEA? Yes, IDEA is the federal statute that authorizes this entire area, and it stands for Indivi Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And what it basically states is that all school districts around the country who are accepting funding, federal funding, for uh, implementation of special education services are in agreement with the rules and regulations that are associated with this federal law. And it is the IDEA that sets out some of these other acronyms that we've been dealing with. Uh, and what about uh, one of the, locally, one of the big decisions and one of the things that probably has a little bit more is the IEP. Uh, what is the IEP? And we use that term all the time. Uh, Jerry, you might, I know right, you do sure. And as a board member, you're going to be hearing about IEPs, with the, which are Individual Education Plans Programs. And so what that means really is when you take a student who has a special need, you determine what type of services, what type of program can you craft for the student, as I said, to make them successful. And that's all laid out in their individual, individual education plan. And so it talks about what type of class they should be in, what type of related services do they need, speech therapy, occupational therapy, what type of accommodations they may need to take different assessments like the state assessment. It kind of lays it out for everyone, including the goals and objectives. What do you, as a child study team and later as the teacher, feel the child can master to really help advance their educational knowledge? And so all that's in the IEP, it's like the Bible for each student. And it's something that's a legal document. The parent is part of the determination. Um, it's called an IEP team made up of child study team members, the parent, educators. You can have the, um, the building principal can be involved. And it's everyone that gets together and says, based on the data, what do we believe 
this child needs to be successful. Uh, and uh, Nathaniel, I, I, I would assume that that's a very important legal from the legal perspective, too, that you follow your IEP. Yes. Well, the IEP, as, as uh, Jerry called the Bible, I call it the, uh, the framework for any uh, litigation because, it, it, as, as um, I've often said, there are two components to any lawsuit that involves special education. The one is the procedural aspects, and the second is the substance. The substance is what Jerry has been talking about. What are the needs of the child and what are the services you're providing? How are you providing them? However, the procedures are all set out through the IEP. So does your IEP have your present levels of performance? Does the IEP have exact duration and frequency of services listed and who's going to provide them? Does your IEP contain goals and objectives that are measurable and can be validated? And has the appropriate number of people been a participant? Has the parent had full participation in the development of this document that is going to guide the child's education for one year? The IEP is a one-year document that must be reviewed annually and updated annually. And so those are the procedural aspects, and any fault in the procedure can result in a loss in a case even if the substance and the, and the services themselves were quality, you can lose a case on procedural aspects. So the IEP, yes, is an extremely important part of any special education operation. And, it's and so I guess that getting back to your point, Nathaniel, about the board making sure that there's high-quality people in these positions, it's following those procedures, uh, particularly in the IEP. Right. And also... Um, knowing that the IEP, as was just said, is your legal obligation. It's the agreement between the child, the parent, and the school district. So as a board member, you might be told, we have to provide an additional aid, or like an individual aid for this child. It's in the child's IEP. Understand, it's not a decision that's just made extemporaneously by a child study team. It's based on the data and the assessment of where that child is, and what will help that child. So you will hear as a board member, it's in the IEP, it's in the IEP, and sometimes you think, what is this IEP that they keep on putting it in? But understand, it's all driven by the needs of the student, and it is our legal obligation, as was said, it's our legal contract with the family that this is what we will do to best meet the needs of the child. Uh, and uh, Nathaniel, you mentioned, what's a prize? Prize. Okay. Prize is the parental rights in special education. Um, sometimes I'll be asked, why do you think there is a lot of uh, litigation in this area and not in other areas involving student matters? And I think part of the reason may be that as part of IDEA, the federal statute, we are required at every single uh, meeting that we have with the parents regarding the IEP that we offer them the prize book. And this prize book has in it all of their rights, all of the procedures, all of the aspects that the parent is entitled to have as part of the eligibility and development of IEP process. Additionally, it speaks to how they can file a challenge who they file for mediation with, how they would file for due process, 
what are the components of due process, what happens in due process, so that a parent has all of the forms and all of the notices and all of the addresses and all of the contact information. And so it's all given to them as part of the uh, document. Right, and as a school board member, you might, if you're not really aware of special education, you might say, why are we telling these people all of this? <laughs> right. You know, sometimes <laughs> it's gonna work against us. But understand, you work best if you have educated parents, that they know what's going on. Because our intent is to follow the law and to follow what the child needs. So there's nothing we are hiding from the parent. There's nothing you're doing that you don't want the parent to know. Um, so it's good that they have the rights because it sets out for them not only their entitlements, but what they're not entitled to. Sure. And there are mm-hmm. certain things they're not entitled to that's important for them to know. So it's really good to have the parents well-informed. Um, where, where I work, we want the parents to be our partners because it makes good educational sense. And from a board perspective, it makes good sense because you avoid a lot of litigation that could possibly come down the road because the parents are informed from the beginning what the parameters are, what they should be expecting, and frankly, where they cannot be expecting certain types of things. So it's prize is very helpful. That's kind of uh, what you just said. It's not in the prize, but it's in the IEP. But before we go on, the communication between the school district, the school, the the administration, and the parents seems to be a really important uh, here, both educationally. Can't be successful unless everyone is involved. Education doesn't only happen between eight and three during the day, the school day. Parents have to have um, an equal partnership in this, and we welcome the parents to be partners with us in this because it's all about doing what's right for the child. So the IEP really helps inform the parent: this is what we're going to do for your child, and also this is what you can do to help your child. And as a good, say, a child study team member, you want the parent to understand the child's challenges and the child's strengths because certainly many of our, if not all of our students with special needs have exceptional strengths that we need to work towards and help them develop so they can be successful. And special Mm -hmm. education is not something that a parent needs to be concerned about, to feel bad about. It just means their child learns a little differently than some of their other from some of their peers, and but however they can still have a very successful life ahead. And the last acronym I want to go through uh, is CPAC, uh, which kind of gets to that communication issue. Uh, I don't know which one of you wants to address the importance of a CPAC. So CPAC is your Special Education Parent Advisory Council or Committee. Every district is required to have um, such a committee. It's made up of parents um, who have children in the special education system. And the role is really to serve as advisors to the district. So they're your eyes and ears out there because they're out there. They're hearing what's going on in the community. And, for instance, the CPAC in Jersey City is a wonderful benefit to us because they have great ideas that sometimes – we don't think about, you know, about training items or maybe we could look for more um, available programs for parents and 
things like that, things that unless you're living it every day, you don't understand. So your CPAC can really be a very good friend of the district. And as a board member, you want a really robust uh, CPAC in your district because, again, it's all about partnership. This should not be adversarial in any way. The other point uh, that I would just like to make, and um, the role of an attorney with a CPAC is quite limited. However, I've had the privilege of working um, as a uh, consultant and speaker, and I think that that's something that um, the CPAC also um, often does is they will, uh, through obviously the approval of the director and whoever uh, other administrators may be involved, they will bring in outside speakers for education purposes. And as Jerry said, it's very important for the parents to be educated on some of the intricacies of special education in terms of what is out there and what they are entitled to consider uh, and request and what they are not. And I have often uh, spoken as a speaker at the CPAC meetings, and it, I've always been amazed at the questions that the parents pose and how interested they are in understanding what their legal rights are when they um, participate in that uh, advisory capacity. And I think it's helped uh, them then spread the message to many of their other community members who may not be able to attend the meeting, but they have contact with in their uh, everyday lives. Absolutely. And they help as advocates. Right. Because just not mm -hmm. all parents are able to advocate for their children. And so they're there, and they, and they understand what you're doing, and you make them your partner because it's good for them and it's good for the children. It seems that if, if you have a robust CPAC, uh, that it's uh, helpful to both the district and the parents. You're educating parents on some of their rights and some of their limitations, but also about special education. But you're also, as a district, getting feedback as to how you can improve. Right. The only thing you have to be very careful, again, it goes back to skilled uh, staff who operate these. You don't want it to become a session where people come in and all they do is complain about what's going on with their own child right. or make it very personal about the teaching staff or commentary about the way the schools are run. It's not meant for that purpose. And I have seen sometimes it can deteriorate if it's not well controlled. Um, so that's just something to be uh, careful about. But when it operates well, it is a, a, a great tool. Right. And SPAN is... Um the Statewide Parent Advocacy Network does great training on CPACs. Mm -hmm. um, they're always out there to help boards of education create CPACs, and they really can, when you have some of these rogue CPACs that, like was just mentioned, they're able to kind of talk to them and say, no, no, this is really the role that you have here, and it's an important role, and that's where you should adhere to. Um, as we're talking, um, I have to start moving on. But you kind of talked about um, parents using this in a different way. A lot of times as a school board member, and Jerry, you'll know this, and I know, Nathaniel, you probably deal with, uh, the parent of a special uh, education student really approaches them all, oftentimes uh, with issues about their child's placement. Uh, what's the board's role in this, Jerry? So, you know, when you go on a board of education, you're there because you want to help. You want to really make people's lives better. You feel you, that you can contribute. Um, and you feel for some reason, you know, new board members come on, they feel sometimes we need to know everything that's going on and we need to get involved and we need to be able to um, make sure that everything's happening correctly. But remember, that's why you hire a capable chief school administrator 
they hire a director of special services. You have staff to do that. Your role is not to administrate the district. And that's a hard thing as a board member to understand. So really, if a, par- if a parent comes to me and says, I'm having issues um, with, with my child in special education, where I live, where I'm a board member, I always say, and this is what you need to say, is you need to discuss it with the director of special services, with your child study team, and ultimately, without satisfaction, you need to go to your chief school administrator. It is not our role to administrate the district, although to board members, including myself initially, it's kind of an interesting thing to do, and you sort of want to have your hands on that. But that's not our role, and we shouldn't take that. And actually, uh, school board ethics require us not to do that. So you really yeah, need to pass administrators. And now, I was going to just also, from, an, from a, a legal perspective, board members have to be extraordinarily careful about uh, entering into that realm of speaking directly about a child's program and placement. There could be potential ethics issues. There could be potential other uh, legal issues that could come up that could put the, the, the district in a very bad position if the wrong thing is said and it comes back later that it was said by a board member to a parent. It's something they relied upon or something that they used um, with maybe a staff member or some other uh, uh, parent. So it's really best, um, certainly like Jerry says, you want to listen and you want to, you know, steer the person in the right direction, but really um, it's not the role of a board member to become directly involved. You don't want to step out of those bounds. First of all, you don't have the knowledge to be able to do that. You also do not have access to the information that you would need to do that. And most importantly, that's not what we do. I mean, if you have the board concerns about the way things are being administrated in your district, you have an opportunity when it comes up to the evaluation process of your chief school administrator to be able to make those concerns known at that time. But other than that, you really need to let people do their job and then hold them accountable, but not really um, interfere. And... uh well, uh, I guess it's important for parents to know that they probably shouldn't be doing that either. So if there's a parent listening, that that's important that you don't go directly to a board member. Uh, Jerry, you mentioned it. The board member doesn't always have that information. What information is a board member privy and not privy to in a lot of this area of special education? So a board member is privy to um, as much information as anybody else in the, the public domain is. They don't have a right just because you're on the board member to know the personal information of students. You need to know what you need to vote on. If you need to authorize a tuition payment, say if it's an out-of-district replacement, you need to know that there is a student being placed in a certain um, out-of-district school. It was done through an IEP. It was determined as meets the child's needs. And that's basically it because then you could vote on that issue. But you do not have a right to know what the particulars are. You don't have a right to know why decisions were made. That's why we have administrators in the district that are authorized under the law to be able to consider those type of things. So our our access to information is limited. It's very hard as a new board member especially to understand that, to accept that, but that's what the law says. And frankly, 
if you were a parent of a child with a special needs student, you would not want all your information all around the district either. These are your neighbors, you see them at the local stores, and they really don't have the need to know your personal information. The other uh, piece, though, that as, again, in my role as an attorney, and obviously the school board is my client, um, there are other aspects that I will share with, um, with, a, with a, a board when it comes to the litigation. I think that all board members should keep themselves apprised, either through administration or through a report of counsel, um, on what is in litigation since litigation involves legal fees and it also involves potential uh, risk of additional services and costs. So uh, they are entitled to know if a lawsuit has been brought either through mediation or due process. Um, again, they will not know the intimate details of all of the, um, the records of the student, but they certainly can be made aware of the fact that it's been filed and what the underlying uh, a dispute is about. Further, once the dispute is resolved, if it does involve money, which sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it may just involve a change in placement within the district, which has no cost to the district, or it may involve additional related services, which is not something that the district could not provide. But if it does involve something that has a dollar amount to it, then there will be a document that the board will be expected to vote on, and certainly that would be shared with the board as well, the underlying issues in dispute, how it was resolved, and what the the ultimate liability is and the cost-benefit analysis of the settlement. So those are things that board members can find out, but I agree with Sherry that certainly they're not going to read the evaluations of the child or know what evaluations were done or the very um, personally identifiable information. Right. As a board member, we know that all of what was just said is privileged information. It's mostly done in executive session. And it's not something that you really need to be talking about outside of executive session, nor should you be talking about it. Oh, absolutely. Under the Open right. Public Meetings Act, both conversations involving confidential student matters as well as attorney-client privilege communications are done in executive session. That's right. And so you need to know when you, when you leave executive session, what you discuss has to remain in executive session. Uh, well, that holds not just in special education, but in everything. Um, right. One of the things, uh, you're a new board member, maybe not even new, and you see um, a placement, and it's very costly. And I think a lot of board members are, like, taken back and say, wow, that's a, a little costly. How does that factor in any decision? So it's very hard when you have some budget um, considerations and then a placement comes across. Uh, for board approval that may be, say, $100,000 a year. Um, you have to understand that, again, it's a legal agreement between the Board of Education and the parent. It was devised in an IEP. As a board member, you can maybe ask, well, do we think of less expensive placements? Is this really the only placement? You cannot get particular information on it. but. Overall, you really can overturn what was decided in an IEP meeting because it was written, it was a legal determination. So as a board member, sometimes you have to just sit back, you have to say, we want to make sure you're looking at less expensive placements, did you consider 
in district placements, you can ask those questions of your superintendent or your director of special services if they're with you in at that meeting. However, ultimately, what has been recommended from the the uh, for the student is what the board will have be obligated to provide. Anything on Nathaniel on your part about the the cost? Well, again, the only uh, uh, factor that I, I would. Uh, uh, add because I think uh, Jerry very eloquently went over the uh, the answer that I I totally agree with uh, in terms of the role of a board member is that you the one factor that is also sometimes difficult for a board to understand but it is the law and that is that when you go even into mediation and due process the courts have specifically stated that a court cannot consider the cost of a potential placement as a factor in the decision-making. So even if, let's say, I as an attorney are trying to argue to a judge, judge, you know, we are offering a placement that, let's say, costs 50000 but the parent wants the one that costs 100000 and we feel that that is just, you know, unreasonable, the judge will say to me, you have to show me why the, the lesser expensive one is appropriate and meets all the other legal standards because I will not consider the double the cost as a factor in my decision. So cost is not something that IDEA allows a court to consider. No, and if you have um, a director of special services that is that he or she are doing their job, they are exploring all programs out there, and they're looking at. Um, how it can be done in not only the most efficient manner, but in the most cost-efficient manner. Right. Um, so those are considerations they'll have. But ultimately, like it was just said, it's what best meets the needs of the student that we are obligated and, as a board member, we're privileged to be able to provide. All right. Uh, and one of the other things, a lot of when you have meetings uh, with parents, parents are allowed to bring in an advocate. Um, and maybe I'll go to you, Nathaniel, first on this. Can anyone be an advocate? Well, it's interesting. There are uh, uh, people out there who uh, consider themselves advocates and are really trained and have received training and are well-educated and well-schooled in the area of being an advocate for a parent. However, the law does not have a specific license or credential that a person must hold, similar to an attorney's license, um, in order to consider themselves an advocate. So as Jerry said, sometimes what you will find is that there will be a parent who is very well educated and will be willing to assist um, other parents and will call themselves an advocate. Um, however, uh, again, you know, are they serving in the role of an advocate officially? Uh, yes, but do what kind of credentials? It will vary very greatly from one to another. Right, and if I may, the best advocate for the child is the parent and the child study team. The child study team is supposed to advocate for meeting the needs of the student. And what what a parent needs to do when they come in, they need to really not take an adversarial approach. I mean, obviously there'll be situations where things may deteriorate into that um, into that area. However, you need to come in and feel that people generally want to do what's best for your child. And as a board member, you want to make sure, as was said before, you have the right people in place to be able to support the kids. So 
while parents do have a right to bring somebody in that they feel comfortable, some parents, maybe if they're a bilingual parent, may not feel they have the proficiency in the in the language, although you can conduct, and we do indeed conduct um, IEP meetings in their native language or the dominant language. However, they may want to bring somebody in. But again, this should not be adversarial. You really don't need somebody to advocate because the IEP team is supposed to be advocating for the student. As a board member, mm -hmm. that's what you... Most of the time you will find that an advocate will not be at the IEP meeting, nor should an attorney really be at the mm -hmm. IEP meeting. I try right. to avoid completely because I agree it should be as non-adversarial as possible. Most of the time the advocates will enter when you're going into a mediation uh, situation where you have a dispute, but it looks like maybe there are compromises that can be made from both sides. And certainly I value that process greatly because many disputes can be resolved through mediation. I have a question that came in from our chat room. I just want to place it on to you. Uh, they wanted uh, to know that um, is home instruction considered, uh, well, not considered, they, they feel home instruction, and this is going back to the least re restrictive, uh, is is that considered a, a restrictive uh, placement? Yes. That, the home instruction is considered one of the more restrictive placements only because, think about it, they're in their home, they are isolated, they have no other peers being educated with them, so that is considered a restricted uh, setting. And quite honestly, uh, if you look at the, uh, the law, home instruction as a program and placement is only permitted for a limited period of time for good cause based primarily on illness, and um, if it goes beyond a certain amount of time, you have to reevaluate the situation and see what else can be provided beyond that because it is considered very restrictive. Right. And if I may add, and home instruction really has to have an outcome based. If you're waiting for, say, an added district placement, there's a concern that the student might not be able to handle the, an in-school placement until that placement comes around. You might have to put the child out of um, in a, on a home instruction right. uh, basis. However, right. it cannot it cannot replace the regular education that should be happening in the school. Yeah, it's um, considered a temporary service. It is considered uh, something that is. Um, doesn't warrant compensatory right. because you are providing individualized right. services, but it is not meant as anything to go beyond a very limited period of time while either you're waiting for evaluations, you're waiting for a placement to come through, or you're waiting, let's say, because the student has a medical crisis. Right. And we know that part of being in a school or educational atmosphere um, benefits the students because they learn proper socialization. So if you mm -hmm. remove them, you put them in a home um, instruction environment, they're not getting to be able to socialize with their peers. So you really want to use that as a last case resort, if at all possible, unless a medical, you know, sometimes with the medical home instruction, there's really no other option. Um, but other than that, you really want to try, try to keep the child with their peers. I have one final uh, question. Uh, we'll see how much time we have left. But uh, look, special ed can be a significant portion of the student population, so, and board members are often parents. If a board <clears throat> member is a parent of a special education student, uh, are there special parameters or things that they have to worry about? I guess, Nathaniel, 
go to your right. Office. I mean, a parent of a special education student has all of the same rights and uh, responsibilities as any other parent, and as long as they themselves function in that uh, capacity, they should uh, have uh, the right to attend all of the IEP meetings, to come to parent-teacher conferences, to meet with the the, the parents, uh, the students' uh, teacher, and so forth. The only limitation that a board member has is there is an ethics opinion that says if they decide that they feel they need to go into due process, they cannot stay on the board right. while they're in litigation with the board. However, if they are just routinely going through the same process for the education of their child under special education, they certainly um, can serve as uh, their own advocates for their child. Uh, again, they have to be very careful not to overstep their bounds right. at any of the meetings with the staff that they um, work with, but uh, with those uh, you know, limitations uh, of respect and, and uh, utilizing the system as, it, as it's meant to be, there should be no difference. Right, absolutely, and you know, it's, it's very hard because, you know, as the board member, you're like we've said before, you never take that hat off. So when you go into a meeting, most people will know that you're a board member. So it's it's difficult, and you have to certainly appreciate that the staff is going to feel a little uncomfortable, but it's going to be on you as a board member to make sure they understand you are there totally as a parent, that you want to be treated like every other parent, that you do not expect any special favors, which we know that we would not be allowed to do anyway, nor should we expect that. Um, but it is a little, it's a little difficult. I had a parent um, that was in that situation, and um, it ca it can get a little out of control because you're talking about your own child, and you want to use right. every ability you have to get that child what you really. It's want hard to separate the, the hats at that point. Very hard, uh, but you know, that's part of what we do when you go on a board. You accept it. All right, our uh, time has run out. <laughs> uh, okay. I apologize to those. We did have a – it went fast, and uh, I apologize to the listeners that we had some static there. I'm not sure how that came about. But I'd like to thank the two of you. And if you're a school board member uh, or administrator, you can, I know uh, Jerry and uh, Nathaniel are doing a presentation at our workshop in October. So, uh, Nathaniel and Jerry, I'd like to thank you both for joining me oh, on this program. Pleasure, Ray. You, you, you're a great moderator. So, yes, and good luck to everyone <laughs> else. All right, and I'll, I'll talk to you guys at another time. Thank okay. you, and uh, thank you for listening in. Yes, thank, thank you. Thank you all. Thank you all. Thank you all. Okay.